location pastor, Pastor Carolina, as she comes to bring the word. Happy birthday to Talia. Are you ready? One, two, three. Happy occupy myself so that I didn't feel the urge to go. It's time to cut that umbilical cord, Carolina. Um, But my girls went, Maya and Layla went, and they had a great time, and Sam went just for the day, and it was just amazing hearing the testimonies. So make sure you come back tonight. I can't wait to hear what the young people have to say. And tell us about camp. I reckon young people are awesome for inspiring us and reminding us again about the fire of God. And um, I just love that. So tonight's going to be awesome. But this morning, I'm excited about bringing the word. Um, I really, this is something that is so heavy on my heart this morning. Um, it's, uh, it's been a challenge and a journey for me, um, the message that I want to bring to you. And I really believe that, that it'll, it'll bring freedom to someone here. Um, and I really pray that we can open our hearts and receive something of heaven, because it's not my words, it's what heaven wants to say through whatever it is I'm saying. So would you position your heart right now to hear whatever heaven wants to whisper to you this morning. But, um, you know, growing up, I have great parents. My dad's here, and I have amazing parents, and they're good people. Growing up, um, we had a Catholic framework, but we didn't really know the power and freedom that is Jesus Christ. Anyone else like that? got some sort of upbringing, some sort of framework, but it's more like a tradition, it's more like a religion than actually the power and the life of the reality of a living God. So that was my reality. And every now and again, every sort of, you know, because regular churchgoers attend once a month, and so we would put on... (laughs) We would put on our floral dresses. Mum would dress us in our cute little cookie-cutter dresses. I'm the oldest of three girls, and we'd wear our cute little Sunday dresses and go off to church and, you know, be sprinkled by the priest and that weird smoke thing every now and again and all sorts of things. And then we'd run around the church gardens after the service. And um, I have lots of memories from the Polish Catholic Church in Bowen Hills. Um, But, you know, as I came into my pre-teens... Um, my family, just like a lot of families in the world, ended in a separation. And I've noticed in my own life and also in the lives of so many people is that the breakdown of relationships, the closest relationships to us, have a major flow-on effect into just about every sphere of that person's life. Is that true? Like when, a re- when close relationships break down, 
It impacts um, careers, doesn't it? It impacts finance, it impacts health, it impacts mental state, emotional state. The breakdown of close relationships has the most profound flow-on effect into every part of that person's life. And so I found myself, just like I've figured almost every other person in the world today, struggling with questions like, is it even possible to live a functional life? Is that just me? Good, I have a few friends here who are honest. <laughs> is it even possible to break the mold of my past? Has anyone ever struggled with that question? Is it even possible to get all my ducks in a row and win at this thing called life? I struggled with these questions and I've noticed just about every other person does as well. Can I live a life that is victorious, that is really going from strength to strength? Is that possible? And so I want to answer some of those questions today. And in short, the answer is yes. And that's why you come to church, because that's the reality of Jesus. Yes, you can live a life that is winning. Yes, you can, and in fact, you should live a life that, it's go that is going from strength to strength to strength. Yes, you can live a victorious life. Yes, you can, here's hope for somebody, break free from the molds you've inherited. Yes, you can rise above the status quo of your life. Yes, you can break the free from the things that have been set over you as a, as a glass ceiling on your life. You can, and in fact, you should. As a follower of Jesus, you should be moving forward from strength to strength to strength. That is the reality of our God. Is that exciting or not? And does anyone actually want to buy into something like that? You know, like to sort of go, this is my experience and my reality, I will not be bound by that. Good or bad, I'm still moving forward and beyond, onwards in God and the things that he has for me. And so before we get into the passage of scripture, which is found in Joshua this morning, I want to lay some background for you. So picture millions of people named the Israelites, God's chosen people. And they've been in slavery in a land called Egypt for hundreds of years. This ginormous nation, this people group, subject to captivity and slavery by the Egyptian people. And they're God's people. So the, the, the strangeness of this situation that this all-powerful God his people are captive to a pagan nation, to a pagan people group for hundreds of years. And yet we come up to this time where God speaks to a man named Moses and he says, I've called you the deliverer to bring these people out of captivity and into freedom. And so Moses, we, his story is challenging because he's a very reluctant leader. Hello? <laughs> Anybody like that is like, me? Like, you've picked the wrong person. God's like, no, it's definitely you. And he becomes the deliverer of these people, like millions of people out of, this, out of captivity in Egypt. And so they, they, they leave Egypt. They come up to the Red Sea, a physical border. And they've got Egypt on their tails. 
the army on their tails, wanting to take them back into captivity. Egypt freaked out and went, oh, now we've got no servants. We have to work on our own. We don't like that. We want them back. So they're chasing them and Israel comes up to the ocean and they can't cross over. God parts the Red Sea so that they can walk through it on dry ground and then closes the sea so that, that Egypt is swallowed up and their enemy is wiped out and they're no longer in th- at threat from their enemy. God supernaturally delivers them through the Red Sea. They're on the other side of the Red Sea and they've overcome that obstacle except that now they have no shelter, they have no food, they have no water, they have no clothing, they have a whole other set of challenges and so God provides for them. Every day he covers them with shade as a pillar, as a pillar of cloud his presence goes, hovers over them as they go through the desert and he protects them by cloud in the day and a pillar of fire at night to keep them warm. Can you imagine that sight? We're talking about millions of people being covered by the presence of God, cloud in the day, fire at night. And they're hungry because people need to eat and so God goes, sure, here's bread from heaven. Every morning it will be waiting for you. And he sends manna, and they can eat the manna every day. Then they go, well, we want meat. Fine, have some quail. He sends quail every day. Well, now we're thirsty. No worries. Here's water out of a rock. Like, have as much water as you want. You know, and oh, well, we don't have, our clothes are wearing out. Sure. So God provides them with clothing that doesn't wear out. Like, he's providing for them every single day in the most supernatural ways. Where are they going? Where are they going? Well, they're going to this place called the promised land that God spoke to their ancestor Abraham about. And and he said to them, go to the promised land. This will be your home, somewhere you can finally call your own. And it's amazing. And I'm providing it for you. So they come up to this place called Canaan, the promised land. And Moses and Aaron, the leaders, send in 12 spies, heads of each of the 12 tribes of Israel. They send in 12 spies to, to get an indication of what the land is like. The spies come back. Two of them say, it's amazing. It, God is so good. He's so faithful. I mean, the grapes are this big. And the cities are established. And the fields are plentiful. And the fact that we're just going to walk in and inherit this is just the favor and goodness of God. These two men, their names are Joshua and Caleb, and they're like, this is awesome. But all of a sudden, the other 10 spies start drowning out their testimony. They're like, whoa, whoa, slow down, guys. The people in the land, they're actually massive. They're giants, you know, and the cities are actually fortified, and the cities have armies. We don't have armies. Actually, we look like grasshoppers to them. We're small and insignificant to them. This, we can't do this. This is too big. This is impossible. Joshua and Caleb rise up and go, no, 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 no. If God said it, he'll do it. We just need to go in faith. We just need to go. But Israel choose the testimony of the 10, the testimony of fear and doubt over the testimony of the two, of faith and promise. And so God says to Moses, because of their doubt, they will all die in the wilderness. Not one of that generation will see the promised land, except for two. Guess who? Joshua and Caleb. And so they're destined now to wander around the wilderness for 40 years until every single one of them dies out 
And so here we are in Joshua chapter 6. Moses has passed away, Aaron has passed away, and all of that previous doubting generation has passed away. And Joshua and Caleb are 40 years older, and they're right up on the border again. The same thing they saw 40 years ago. They're here again. This time Joshua only sends two spies in. Funny that. He sends two spies in, and here we are in Joshua chapter 6, where the spies are at the gates of Jericho. Now, Jericho was one of the cities in Canaan, the promised land. Jericho was a fortified city that had a wall all the way around it. It was so big that they could run chariots around the top of the wall. People lived inside the wall. It was tall and it was deep. The wall was its fortification. There was only one way in and one way out through the gate of Jericho. And so here are these spies. They've been sent into Jericho. Now you have to understand that over 40 years, um, Israel has developed quite a reputation for itself among the people. And so all the cities know who Israel is. More importantly, they know who the God of Israel is because the God of Israel wipes out anyone who opposes Israel. And so... The people living in Jericho know that Israel is just outside the door. And scripture tells us that they start freaking out. Israel's on our doorstep. And these two spies are sent in. Now I need to tell you, every uh, people group looked particular in those days. So these two spies, no doubt, went in disguise so that they weren't picked up by the guards. They had to go in... um, very inconspicuously, not to be identified. And so we see them now, they're going up to the wall, they're standing there, these two young spies, up to the fortified city of Jericho, a pagan, defiled, unclean nation, and had to get in inconspicuously. The Bible tells us they came to the house of a harlot named Rahab. I want to tell you about Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute, who lived in the wall of Jericho. She lived in the wall right near that gate, the only in and out of town, and she lived there. Now, we don't know for sure because the Bible doesn't explicitly tell us all the setup of this scenario, but as you, if you look into it in context, many people say that, that this kind of woman, this kind of prostitute, was probably at one stage gifted to the king by her family as a servant, as a concubine, as a young girl. And so eventually, you know, he would have had plenty of these girls in his harem. And over the years, they served him. And when he was done with them and some younger, prettier girls came along, these women were tossed onto the trash heap of human life to make the most of what was the rest of their lives. For Rahab to be a prostitute in that prominent position meant she probably struck up a deal with the king, saying, if you allow me to conduct this kind of business in this location, I'll be your informant. And we see later on, and we'll read it, that she becomes very trustworthy. She, uh, I guess, establishes a reputation as a loyal servant of the king. And so you can just imagine her life. Because the Bible tells us or implies that she's very wealthy. She's made a good living (laughs) doing this. She's trusted. She's wealthy. She's at the gate of Jericho. 
And here she is. And we've got an interesting scenario taking place. Because as we read, and we will in a minute, we see this posture of her heart that is desperate to know the God of Israel. Somehow this woman from Jericho, from the lifestyle she'd come from, sparks on to the idea that every man and every God up until this point has mistreated and abused me. But this God, their God, I've heard he actually protects his people. I want to know him. And so we have this scenario where these two godly men are coming up to the wall of Jericho needing to get in and find out information and a prostitute going, I want in with that crowd. And they somehow, I don't know, I wish the Bible told us, how does a prostitute convince two godly men to come into her house? I don't know. I don't know. I really, I can't wait to ask the three of them in heaven. Like, what actually happened? Because she's probably leaning out the window. Okay, ladies, have you ever been shopping and the sales assistant says, can I help you find what you're looking for? What is it you're looking for? And you go, I don't know, but when I see it, I'll know. So this is Rahab. She's looking day after day out the window. She's going, I don't know what I'm looking for. But when I see it, I'll know it. And she's looking out the window, and there are crowds of people, merchants, traders, all sorts of people at the gates waiting to get into Jericho that day. And she sees them. And somehow she identifies them, and no one else does. She knows what she's looking for. And somehow she gets their attention without disturbing the attention of the guards and everyone else. Somehow it says that they end up in the house of a harlot named Rahab. I have no idea how that happened, but they're in her house and she has to hide them in her ceiling because in no time at all the guards do get suspicious of what's happening and they end up on her doorstep. And so I can just imagine these two men in the ceiling of a harlot's house with, two, with guards now in the house going, this is a trap, we're done for, this is over. How do we get ourselves into this? But what's actually happening is Rahab is saying to the guards, no, they've already gone. Actually, they went in this direction, and if you catch them, you know, if you leave now, you'll catch up to them. Um, this is the way they went. I told them to go this way. And the guards believe her. They don't even question her, which tells us how trustworthy she was that she had been an informant to the king, trusted by the guards. And they actually go. She sends them on a wild goose chase then calls them back down. She calls them back down, and this is what she says to them. Joshua 2, verse 8 to 14. Have we got that? Joshua 2, 8 to 14. Now, before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the two men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. 
Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now therefore I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you will also show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. So when... So the men answered her, our lives for yours, if none of you tell this business of ours, and it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. Is there one more? Is that it? Yeah. That we will, yeah, we'll deal kindly and truly with you. Then what happens if we keep reading is she goes, great, deal made, so this is what you have to do. She lets them out her window by a scarlet cord, which is a message in itself about the blood of Jesus. Lets them out um, and sends them in. She said, I've sent the guards this way. If you go this way, and she gives them directions on how to escape death, and they do that. They get back to Joshua with an awesome report. This place is mint. This is awesome. And they are so afraid of us. Like, we've got this. We've got this. The fact that the place is fortified and armed meant nothing to them. Um, they're like, Joshua, we can do this. And then we read on, and many of us know that God says to Joshua, okay, so the way the walls are going to come down is, you're all going to march around the city for six days in silence, and on the seventh day, you're all just going to go crazy and yell and blow trumpets and act like silly people, and the walls are just going to fall down. <laughs> and, and Joshua's like, okay, because God usually has really, really weird plans and really strange ways of doing things and so Joshua does this and on the seventh day when they're blowing the trumpets we skip down to chapter 6 verse 16 and the seventh time it happened when the priests blew the trumpets that Joshua said to the people shout for the Lord has given you the city now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction in it and all who are in it only Rahab the harlot shall live she and all who are with her in her house because she hid the messengers that we sent. Is that it? Yep. And so then what happens is, is we go on and they're actually doing all this stuff. And then in verse 23, but Joshua said to the two men who spied out the country, go into the harlot's house and from there bring out the woman and all that she has as you swore to her. The young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers and all that she had. And they brought um, all her relatives and left them outside the camp of Israel. But they burned the city and all that was in it with fire. Only the silver, gold, and vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, her father's household, and all that she had. So she dwells in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua had sent to spy out Jericho. The message I want to share with you this morning is a message on relationships. I think we have a lot to learn from a harlot named Rahab from a pagan city on how to do family, how to do marriage, and how to do legacy. Are you ready? Awesome. We can't be certain of the relational dynamic between Rahab and her immediate family. These ones, her father, her mother, her brothers, her sisters. We can't be certain because the Bible doesn't tell us. Although, as I did mention before, usually these types of scenarios mean that it was the woman's family who cast this fate on her as a young child. 
So it was those closest to her who denied her any future prospect of marriage or security. It was those closest to her who probably put her in that predicament as a child. She was the sacrificial lamb on the altar of their promotion and their security. They did it as a way of gaining favor with the king. Here, take one of our daughters. And she was to pay the price with her life for the greater good of the family. The people closest to her hurt her the most. And I know, because I've been doing this for a long time, that that is the story of many of our lives. And it may not be as dramatic as that, but you may be facing a relational rift in your family. You may be facing hurt, offense, by the hand of someone who you loved dearly and who should have treated you better. I know that for Rahab, it was quite likely those people who did that to her. And somehow, she made a way of salvation for them without asking their permission, without asking their consent first. She just went in and bargained with God himself on the behalf of the ones who hurt her the most. It's really challenging, isn't it? It is so challenging. In Matthew 5, verse 44, it says, But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. In 1 Timothy 5, verse 8, the Apostle Paul is writing to a young Timothy, and he says, But if anyone in the church does not provide for his own, especially for his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I know you all want to throw knives at me right now and you're already drafting emails. <laughs> I get it. And can I tell you, I've, I'm pretty sure I've heard it all. I've heard some of the most heartbreaking stories of people who have been hurt at the hands of those closest to them. And I want to tell you that there are only two outcomes for you, if that's you. And one is continued pain, and the other is freedom. And can I, as gently and as sensitively as I possibly can, pose this to you? If you're still hurting years later, it's because your focus has been the wrong thing. What happened was real. What happened was not fair, was not right. It should not have happened. Those people should have known better. But it makes no difference now that it's happened. What makes a difference now is whether you choose to let it go or whether you choose to rehearse it. And that determines everything about your tomorrow. And what Rahab saw in all her pain, in all her loss, in everything that was denied of her, she caught a glimpse of a God who somehow offered her something she could never have before. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. When we truly see how great he is in his love, 
the complexities fall away. The complexities fall away because we start to hear a new song over our lives. And it doesn't negate what happened. It just attunes our ear to something altogether different. It just means our focus shifts from what we're rehearsing to this new song, from our past to the future. And it's only when we let go of the past that we can take up the future. And Rahab all of a sudden saw the magnitude of this God and his love was so big that it could consume her and everyone else around her. It was not exclusive to her. It was so big that she lost herself in him. She was no longer aware, so to speak, of the hurt anymore because there was healing. In a moment, we're healed. In a moment, we finally see what's ahead of us instead of what's behind us. In a moment, we're ready to let go of all that to pick up what's ahead of us. It's so, so powerful. And, you know, this kind of revelation takes maturity. I know it does. And not everybody at any given moment is ready for that. And that's okay. Everybody's on a journey. But maybe there's one person sitting here today and you've just seen him in his love and you've just felt that pain fall away. That's how big he is. That's how big his future for you is that you are no longer bound by the pain of the reality of what happened, but you're free into what he has for you. And it's a spiritual concept. It's an emotional concept. It's something that doesn't make sense in our heads because in our heads we want to justify it over and over again. We want to overanalyze the situation over and over again. And God's going, you're right, it did happen, it wasn't right, but would you just see what's ahead of you? Would you just see what I've got for you? And Rahab was able to do that. In a moment, she was healed. In a moment, her her hurt was no longer as big as it seemed, and the pain paled in comparison to his love. We let go of the baggage to embrace the future. This then allowed Rahab to make a way for her, her family without asking them. She just stood in the gap and saw them saved. And it needs to be the posture of our prayer life towards our families, that we stand in the gap for our families, whether they want it or not. Whether they want it or not. And that is the story of many people in my family. When you just go, I know they actually don't want it. (laughs) But I'm standing in the gap. I'm making a bargain with heaven itself. I want them saved. I want them saved. I'm going to see them saved. I'm not taking another option. There is no plan B. There is no other option. They might not want it. Doesn't matter. I'm standing in the gap. I'm making a way. They will come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that needs to be our posture. You don't have to justify and apologize. Okay? Just just stand in the gap. Just stand in the gap of a God who is big enough to cover you and them. You and them. Seek God. Find yourself in Him and all the complexity will fall away. Stop focusing on the complexity, on the justification, on what was right and what was wrong and just focus on this God. 
this God who provides for the people who love him, who provides for the people that he loves, and watch everything else sort itself out. For family to work right, you and I need to do our bit to keep God the central focus of our lives. For family to work, God needs to be the center of your perspective. Not the pain, not the past, not anything else, just God. And this was Rahab. I just want him. That's it. That's all I'm going for. He was her perspective. Number two, marriage. Verse 25. Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, and it says, So she dwells in Israel to this day, because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent. I've read the genealogy, and I've done a bit of study. One of those two spies named Salmon, (laughs) great name, he married her. So one of the spies actually married Rahab, the harlot, the prostitute from a pagan city, this godly man chooses a prostitute over all the godly women in Israel. Why? Man, when I realized this, I was so challenged. I mean, she's been around the block a few times. And here's this pure, godly man, so profiled that he's actually one of two out of millions who gets sent in, and he chooses her. Why? Why? Why is it that a pagan prostitute was more attractive to a godly man than all the good girls in Israel? Could it be that she actually was passionate about God? Could it be that she actually had something that all the other girls didn't have and that was a fire in her belly? A revelation of passion and and faith, a revelation of this God who she was consumed by and she was irresistible to a man of God. Oh my goodness. Out of hundreds and thousands of women, one woman who's been around the block was the person a godly man wanted to marry. Come on, and this applies to men and women who are found week in, week out in the house of God who fall into familiarity and complacency and boredom with the God of the universe and a new person walks in and is consumed by his love on fire and they are irresistible to the presence of God and the favor of God and the provision of God and we look at them and go, why is like their blessing on their life because they're not complacent and lazy. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) Do you remember what it was like to meet Jesus for the first time? Do you still feel that way today? Come on. Because I know that that takes a conscious stirring. That takes a diligent effort to shake off the scales of complacency. When I was writing this, I just wrote this thought down. It's on the screen. 
the Israelites consistently turned the safety net of God's grace into a hammock that lulled their attitudes and spirits into a complete disengagement from the God they were actually dependent on. They turned his safety net of grace into a freaking hammock. And they were sleeping. They were lulled to sleep, to numbness, to discontentment. They could not do a day without God. They could not do a single... They were so dependent on him and yet completely disengaged from him. And Christians, many Christians fall into this this hammock lifestyle. We do need God. You woke up this morning with breath in your lungs because he allowed it to happen. And yet we come to church with this complacency, mediocrity, familiarity. There's so much to God. There's so much he wants to pour out over each of our lives individually. He is endlessly good, faithful. His plan and blessing and favor over your life will blow your mind. But you can just stay in that hammock or you can remember it's actually a safety net of grace and live on the edge of grace. Live on the edge of faith and gratefulness and thanksgiving. Single people here today, how's your relationship with Jesus? How's your passion for Jesus? Many, many people, they have a list of like, I want to meet this person, failing to realize they're actually not much of a prize themselves. (laughs) I'm sorry. Married people, does your relationship with God inspire and propel your spouse? Or have you grown complacent with God and in your marriage? I remember when we were early married, Sam would often say, everything you say happens. Because I used to just go, wouldn't it be nice if, and then it would happen. And so if ever Sam wanted something, he'd go, can you just say it? But you know, this guy's up every morning with his Bible before I'm out of bed. That challenges me. And when we were dating and I came from like, you know, the things I'd done and I'd messed up and that sort of thing, I had no concept of what a godly relationship looked like. And so this, my life group leader who then starts showing interest in me, okay, there's a key. Um, He you know, we start dating and, and we got engaged and, and I remember one time we were in his bedroom on the computer, which was like this big, big screen back then, um, doing our wedding budget. And um, I'm not awesome with finances. So I kind of went, ugh, and laid down on his bed. He got up and left the room. He was not gonna be in the same room as me in that posture. I sat up straight away and went, well, that's a whole other level of integrity right there. Come on, how are we in our relationships with God and does that inspire the, you know, our spouses, our future potential spouses, the people of the opposite sex around us? Because for Rahab, she stood out from hundreds and thousands 
of complacent, good Israelite girls because she had this burning passion for the God of Israel. Um, President, former President Jimmy Carter once said this, I hate to see complacency prevail in our lives when it's so directly contrary to the teaching of Christ. Complacency is directly contrary to the teaching of Christ. Sometimes and often, complacency comes about when we worship the gift instead of the giver. And that's what happened to the Israelites. They were so comfortable with the provision of God that they lost sight of the one providing it. She has so much to teach us on marriage. All she ever wanted was the face of God to smile on her. It's all she wanted. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. She didn't have a plan of, if I find the right guys coming into town, I'm going to get myself a husband. She just wanted God. And everything else was added to her life. If you want to live a blessed life, Stop worshipping yourself and start worshipping Jesus. For marriage to work right, we have to do our bit to keep God the central focus of our lives. Find yourself in him, be renewed into his likeness, be an inspiration to those around you. And finally, and you know what I've done, I've forgotten this whole time, So this was point one, <laughs> family. <laughs> I even had prompts in my notes and I missed them. This is point two, marriage. And point number three, legacy's lamp. may not be able to see the screen now, sorry about that. Okay, not only did Rahab marry a godly man, it says that she lived in Israel for the rest of her life. I want to read you the genealogy of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Matthew 5, verse 1. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David, the king of Israel, who is Jesus' ancestor. A prostitute made a way for Jesus Christ. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness, a woman from that line, from that experience, made a way for you to sit on a black seat in Contaf in October 2015. Do you get that? Do you understand the magnitude of that? Just put yourself in her shoes for a minute one minute and now consider what your life could accomplish if God was the central focus of your pursuit. Come on. 
Jesus can relate to every single person. On one hand, he's the king of the universe. On the other hand, he's the son, illegitimate son of a teenage girl with prostitutes in his legacy. He can relate to anybody, absolutely anybody. And the fact that my salvation comes through a line of misfits and dysfunctional people over and over and over again never ceases to amaze me and inspire me to be more than I am and more than I think I can be and more than my family patterns and more than my expectations and more than my hopes and dreams and bigger than what I dare to believe. You're just as dysfunctional as I am and God still uses us. Oh, it's so, so empowering, so inspiring. And it would seem that the only common thread was a genuine and sometimes hesitant abandonment to the grace of God. It's amazing. And so the the real question is, what will your life stand for once you're gone? Proverbs 31 talks about a virtuous life. It says she, but you know, it can be interchanged male and female. They taste and see that the gain from their work with God is good. And her lamp goes not out, but it burns continually through the night of trouble, privation, sorrow, warning away fear, doubt, and distrust. This scripture really used to irritate me. Like, great. So sleep deprivation is actually not just a season of like early childhood, it's a calling of the virtuous person. Awesome. Her lamp goes not out at night. That's really great. Great. So I'm working hard all day and all night until I realized I had this, I stumbled across in my study what the lamp actually is. In Revelation, the the writer of Revelation refers to the lamp quite often. And Revelation actually refers to salvation. It refers to Jesus. It refers to our salvation. So now we read that scripture again. Her salvation goes not out at night. It burns brightly through the night, warning away fear and doubt and sorrow. It lights up the whole house. Her salvation makes a way for the whole household for the generations that are coming after her. I mean, that's awesome because it means you can go to sleep at night. But how awesome is that? Because in our darkest seasons, when it is night, when it is fearful and doubtful and hard, is your lamp switched off or under a basket or is it burning bright and illuminating the whole household? That's when it counts. That's actually when it counts, is when it's tough, is when it's dark. That's when it matters for the next generation and for you. It is your salvation that burns bright through the night. It is your salvation that illuminates the whole house for future generations. They're covered by your salvation. For the future generations to work right, we need to do our bit to keep God the central focus of our lives. I remember Sam telling me this story about his own dad, about Steve, Steve and Gunther, 
who came from a family of farmers and um, actually it was his stepfather and his stepfather when he heard that Steve had made a decision to follow Christ took Steve out to the farm and he said look son I don't really appreciate this new lifestyle you're choosing to go down if you want an inheritance from me you need to denounce this Christianity deal I'm not going to give you anything if you pursue this and it was kind of like the situation where Satan takes Jesus on the hill and goes see all this I'll give you all this if you denounce God it's kind of like that I'll give you all this if you denounce Jesus he's saying and Steve in that moment that dark moment that night moment decided to make his lamp shine really bright and instead of denouncing his salvation he denounced the temptation of stuff the gift he didn't worship the gift he worshiped the giver and I Sam and I are now living fruit of that one decision in a dark moment it is so powerful and I pray that God will use me for future generations that has been the cry of my whole Christian walk that I'll make a way for someone else that I will in dark times shine even brighter and there's a statement that Sam and I live by that some have a name that echoes through history others have a legacy that echoes into eternity the former is all about self and the latter is all about others I've noticed that God's promises are always bigger than me they always go beyond who I am and they always include someone else and I honestly believe that we miss the whole picture if we're not sowing into someone else's life we miss it all together and that's why the psalmist wrote your faithfulness extends from generation to generation God's dream for your life is greater than your dream for your life and it always involves somebody else lots of others sowing our lives into others continuously pouring ourselves out I wonder what will your legacy be will your life propel others into an eternity with Jesus will your lamp of salvation illuminate those who follow after you your promise should always be another person's inheritance bow our heads and close our eyes this morning making a way for somebody else and you know as I was preaching this morning that first point about family and hurt I really so strongly so strongly believe that there is one or two people there are one or two people here who have been so hurt by those closest to them and but this morning you've had a revelation not a revelation of what you need to do differently not a revelation of another level of how you can rationalize what happened you've just had a revelation of the love of Jesus the bigness of God like Rahab he's so good he's so good that all that other stuff just has paled all of a sudden it's paled is freedom in God there's freedom in the work of Jesus who took all that pain the pain of all humanity he took it on himself all the wrongdoing all the shame did you know that that's why he hung on a cross 
He hung on a cross so that he could take it for you, pay the price so that you didn't have to pay it every day of your life and you didn't have to pay it into eternity. You didn't have to be weighed down, burdened, ripped off, sold out, mistreated, so that you didn't have to rehearse that pain or that regret, whatever it is. Jesus died on a cross, a death that you and I wouldn't have to continue on in the pain that we have. Someone here this morning, I'm just believing for liberty. And liberty is when prison doors are open and there's a new regime that rolls into town. Captives are set free, chains are unlocked. But do you know what? That person then has to get up and walk out the door. Because the prison door can be wide open, the chains can be loose around your ankles and you can still choose to sit in that place. I encourage you, that's you this morning, to get up, walk into your freedom and don't go back into that dark place. Walk into your freedom, follow your feet in Jesus. That's you this morning, no one's looking around. I'd love for you to raise your hand so that I can pray with you. Thank you. Awesome. One, two, yeah. Anyone else here this morning? So I look around. Maybe, maybe this is the first time you've actually had this revelation. If that's you, give me a wave. Thank you. Awesome. So good. So good. Many of us sit in church. <laughs> And we allow complacency to come around our lives. And Jesus is going, I've got so much more for you. So much more. I want to challenge us this morning to shake off complacency. To maybe look at some of the, the fiery young people or some of the new Christians that come into our, house every day, into, into our house every week. Remind ourselves what it's like to see Jesus for the first time. Thank you, Lord. Father God, I thank you for this amazing church community that you've blessed us with. I thank you for your word that changes our lives. I thank you, Lord, <laughs> that you use the most unlikely people and you record them in scripture. You record them so that we can be inspired by them and empowered by them. Father God, we thank you today for Rahab. We thank you for a woman who taught us how to do marriage, who taught us how to stand in the gap for her family, who taught us how to make a way for the generations. We thank you for a woman with a spirit keen and sensitive enough to pursue you so that today we can receive you. Father, I thank you, Lord God, that you received her. I thank you that you are a God that is all-inclusive, that you are not exclusive in any way. Lord, you will take anyone who abandons themselves to your grace and to your love. You just cover them and consume them. Father, and that is the same for us today. Light us up, God. Light us up, Lord Jesus. Father, I pray for families. I pray, Lord Jesus, for marriages. I pray for children. Lord God, I pray for relationships right across, friendships, work, Lord. Father, I ask that you would teach us how to be strategic, spiritually strategic. Father, that you would show us how to walk in grace. Father, not in offense, not in, in prejudice, Lord Jesus, but in your freedom, knowing we find ourselves in you. And whatever happens around about us pales in significance compared to 
who you are in our lives. Father, I thank you this morning for every person who made a decision, who raised their hand and said, yes, you know what, that's resonating with me. I want to take one step closer to you, God. I want to take one step closer. I want to take 10 steps closer, Lord, to who you are. Father, I thank you this morning for responsive hearts. Lord, that the seed would fall on good soil. Lord Jesus, you are so good. In Jesus' name, amen and amen and amen. Why don't we stand to our feet?